Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from Savannah, Georgia, as my family and I continue our march northward, targeting a return to New England in early May. Uh, I am very excited to welcome Julie Hooper, who is the Vice Chancellor for University Development and Alumni Relations at the University of California, Berkeley, where she manages a team of over 250, a budget of over $60 million. We are so excited to get your perspective Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brent. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, one of our favorite uh, ways to kick off the show <laughs> has been uh, not just going back through your resume, but actually starting at a very specific point, which is the Julie who was a junior or senior of high, in high school trying to make her own college <laughs> decision. Uh, uh-huh. Who were you? Where were you at the time? Uh, and ultimately, what led you to Boston University? Well, it's, it's a great question. I was uh, very active with the speech and debate team in high school, especially senior high school, 11th and 12th grade. And uh, I also was pretty sure I would go to college in Texas because my dad said, you can go to UT, A&M, Rice, wherever, but you're staying in Texas. So uh, my senior year, I was really lucky to get to go with my speech and debate team to the Harvard tournament. And you know, my first trip to the Boston Cambridge area, it was amazing. And just, I loved it. I fell in love with Boston and Cambridge and it was really cold and snowy, but that's not the experience that I had growing up in Dallas. And BU had really been actively reaching out to me. John Silber uh, was president of BU then. He'd been a dean at UT Austin uh, back Mm. in the day and had gone to BU. And I think BU was actually really actively reaching out to get students from the South and the Southwest. And I was just getting a lot of attention from them. um, And I was sure I was going to UT. And in fact, I'd even sent in my deposit to live at Dobie, which is one of the dormitories at UT. And I was made an offer by BU, some scholarship money that made it possible for me to convince my dad to let me go to Boston. And, you know, he'd never been there. He did not visit the campus. He put me on a plane in Dallas. You know, I was raised by my dad. I'm an only child. We're very, we were very close. I can't, you know, I think about that now. And when he passed away in 2017, I thought a lot about what that must have been like for him to put his only child on a plane in Dallas and send her to Boston. But it was the best experience for me. I loved, loved Boston. And it's funny because I didn't apply to any other schools outside of Texas. So you come back from this debate experience at Harvard and you're like, dad, it was a good trip. And by the way, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I might want to go to college in New England. I mean, yeah, was he what, was, like, how happy was he? You went on that trip in hindsight, I guess. <laughs> uh, probably not that happy, but ultimately very proud of me. And we had, we actually had a lot of fun when he would come up to Boston. We went to Maine. We went out to Western Massachusetts. You know, he, he, he was kind of a crazy driver himself. So he loved people driving in Boston and the double parking. And he just, he was totally into it. Um, I think, I think he was ultimately very happy and he really admired John Silver. I think somehow the fact that Silver was a Texan and from San Antonio Mm. and was president of BU comforted my father in some odd way, but yeah, I'm sure it was very, at the time, pretty radical. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so it's one thing to kind of have this experience, you know, do the weekend, 
get enamored with the area, get excited about BU as an institution. It's another thing to actually live in the cold a good chunk yeah. of the year and actually yeah. be in a New England, you know, culture versus uh, a Texas culture a yeah. good chunk of the year. And so um, when you think about your maybe preconceptions or what you were excited about going to BU, did that, was that realized? Like what were some of the highlights, any of the challenges? Was there a culture shock? I mean, what was your overall um, experience? Yeah, no, all of those, all of those things. I, uh, acclimating to the weather <laughs> was not easy. And now if I go someplace really, really cold or someplace really, really hot, which let's, let's face it, I'm from Texas. I should be used to this, but because I live in Northern California, I'm a real wimp now. I don't like to be too hot or too cold. Uh, but uh, you know, when I was 18, it was kind of fun, but I did have to learn how to wear layers and how to uh, walk in the snow. BU is infamous for never canceling class, no matter how bad the snow was or how bad the weather was. So you have to learn to, to live in that environment. Culturally, it was definitely very different um, from Texas and, and, and that was exciting to me. I was born in Houston, but raised in Dallas, and I have a lot of family in Houston. And then, of course, I've talked about Austin. I'm sure I lived there almost 20 years. But, you know, Boston was very formative for me. When people say, oh, you don't sound like you're from Texas, I just laugh and say, well, that's four years in Boston. Uh, one of the other things that stood out to me when I first got to BU um, was I remember seeing the football field and thinking, oh my goodness, it's like a quarter of the size of my high school football stadium, right? But on the other hand, we had the bean pot and hockey, which was not something that we had in Dallas. Uh, now there's the Dallas Stars, of course, but when in the 80s, no, there was no hockey. And so that was fun to experience, uh, as was uh, Head of the Charles, right? And I yes. lived in a dormitory my freshman year. I was very lucky. I got to live in Shelton Hall and we were on, I guess, the eighth or the ninth floor and our suite looked out over the Charles and we could sit up there and watch the head of the Charles. How cool is that to get to do when you're an 18 year old from Dallas? Um, and, and so for me, I think the seasons too, I just grew to really love the seasons. And it's so funny, uh, you know, being again from Texas, seeing how slightly warmer it would get from cold and people would put on shorts. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, it's actually yeah. short season right now in Boston. Cause I think it was like 60 yeah. this week. So yeah, exactly. people are, uh, people are feeling good. Well, look, I mean, I can empathize a lot and I think, yeah, look, some of those experiences like bean pot and head of the Charles, if you're listening and you have no idea what those things are, Google them. Head of the Charles is this global rowing regatta. It's just, you, you can't describe it until you experience it. If you haven't yeah. grown up around rowing uh, yeah. and certainly the bean pot, which is essentially the city championship among the top hockey teams in, in Boston is, uh, I mean, that's like homecoming for BU. Oh, I mean, yeah. That's sort of like homecoming for Northeastern. Um, and uh, yeah. yeah, it's just an amazing, um, amazing event. And so how about, you know, academically, you, you mentioned, um, sorry, you mentioned that scholarship was an important part of your journey. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, tell me more about that. I mean, for many of us, that's our first exposure to the world of philanthropy is, of course. you know, your own uh, kind of experience as a beneficiary. So um, how, how, I guess, um, important was that in, in not just the access to BU, but did you, did you feel connected to that scholarship and philanthropy during your time as a student or did it come later? I think it came later. 
Um, I, you know, I will say though, I was also an RA and I was an RA in Warren Towers. And if people know Warren Towers, it used to be the largest storm in the country. And at one point, I think Texas had the largest storm, but you know, we're all competing for that, but it's an enormous dormitory on Com Ave. And I was in the B Tower on the 13th floor. And I think being an RA in many ways, which I also did to help fund, you know, being in school because it covered my room and board. I feel like that was also a fantastic experience to connect me to the university. In a way, I'm not sure, you know, the scholarship made it possible to accept, but it was my dad who was looking at those bills. And and it's funny because when he passed away, he kept everything. And I was going through, you know, his files and I saw where he had written the checks, but I can see the scholarship line on the bill. And I'm thinking, wow, what a big deal that was. And I'm not the one writing the checks then. So I'm not realizing it in the same way. Mm-hmm. But being an RA was really important to me, and it really bonded me to BU in many ways. I think that my department, I was in the history department, and of course, I was surrounded by history. You talk about, you know, culturally, how is it different? It's so much older, the, the buildings, the history, it's, you're surrounded by history in Boston, right? And that, I loved that. And I think the campus, even though it's very urban campus, you have places like Bay State Road and you have, you know, fin, you know Fenway Park is right there in Kenmore Square. And it's, it's very alive. And I, I loved that. I loved the urban environment, uh, even though it doesn't seem like a traditional campus. Um, I also was uh, active with an interview program, um, which I got to interview incoming uh, applicants. Uh, we were trained to interview students who were applying to BU, and, and it was fun. It was That also connected me to the institution. So yes, the scholarship made it possible to make the choice to go there. I certainly now, knowing everything I know in higher ed philanthropy, boy, am I grateful for that. Um, it, I would say when I was in graduate school, financial aid and scholarship funding I received in graduate school, I was much more um, directly aware of who the funders were, who made things possible for me more so than I was when I was 18. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's one of those, uh, I, I feel the same way. Like I remember getting my financial aid letter to Brown. I remember seeing the name of the fund, but not really knowing what that meant. And yeah. you do wonder, and obviously there's been significant, um, investment and programming to try to better connect, you know, more, um, you know, scholars with their donors, but it, 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 you know, how do you make it more than a line item to a 19 year old? And, um, and, and I think that that's, um, you know, still an area of opportunity to make it more real and instill some of that, you know, culture, um, during the student experience, um, for sure. But as you went through the history program, um, you know, that can lead to a lot of paths, including senior leadership of a uh, global fundraising organization like you are today, but you don't usually know that uh, when you're right. sitting sitting in history class. Um, what were some of the paths that you were considering? And then ultimately, what was your, your um, stop beyond graduation, your first stop? Yeah, I, well, like you, I think I heard in one of your podcasts, maybe uh, the one with Howard Hevener from my team at Berkeley, uh, you know, I had an international relations interest at one point. That was my first major, and then I switched to history. Um, I had a, a, I took two semesters of Russian. I, I didn't do so well in that. I should have. Do you have anything French. you want to dust off? Do you want to dust off any Russian uh, podcast I can say, listeners right now? I can now? say, yeah, I can say Minyazavut Yulia. Minyazavut Prince. So actually, I'm right there with you. <laughs> wonderful. There you go. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I, 
because of my speech and debate background in high school, and it was such a big part of my life, I was, if you'd asked me when I was 19, what would I do? I sure I would have said I was going to go to law school. Hmm. Um, that's not ultimately what I did. But I, I think at that time, that was something that I felt was a very clear path for me. Um, but I always had an interest in the international focus. Uh, when I graduated, though, in 92, there was, it was not a good economy in Boston in the Northeast for hiring and jobs and things were better in Texas. And I had to move back to Dallas and I hate to say this, but my dad knew this. I mean, I remember being on that American Airlines flight from Boston back to Dallas and I was in tears. I did not want to leave. Wow. <laughs> uh, but I came back to Dallas and I, I moved home as so many students have to do at a certain point. And I uh, waited tables you know, for the summer while I job searched. And I got really lucky. I was hired in as a very entry-level person for a textile company of all things uh, called Crow Resources International that was doing work in India and China. Mm. Uh, husband and wife owned company, small, small company. They also had a quilt company called Impressions Imports. And that was my first job out of college. And I started at the bottom and just did anything I was asked to do, basically, but um, eventually worked my way up to product management. And I got to spend a lot of time in India in my early 20s wow. and work and business. It's incredible. Really incredible. All right. So favorite memory or craziest experience as uh, young 20s in India doing global business at a time where yeah, you know, that was still relatively early to be doing that sort of, um, that sort of work. And your, your friends and classmates must've been wondering what, like, what is this job? I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I had some friends come from BU who were living in Nashville and Austin actually came up to see me in Dallas and they just were sort of amazed by what I was getting to do. Me too. Right. Sometimes I would be asked to go to India on like 48 hours notice because I was the person in the office that wasn't married, didn't have kids, didn't even have any pets and at that point was living, you know, my own apartment in Dallas. So I'd say, sure, you want me to go to India in two days? Okay, I'll go. Wow. Um, you know, an interesting memory, and I wrote about this when I applied for graduate school, was going to southern India to one of our vendors in very, very rural southern India, a Muslim part of the nation. You know, India is a very complex democracy with a lot of religions and also different languages spoken. We were in Southern India and my boss, uh, Ed Crow from Chicago, uh, he, he and I were traveling together and we were working with this vendor and they refused to deal with me because I was a woman. And Ed finally said, and by the way, I couldn't go to the restaurant in this town because women weren't allowed inside. And he insisted that they bring food to this hotel. It was pretty basic. And did you, did you have that context when you were heading down to this meeting or were you blindsided by it? I was a little blindsided, to be honest with you. And I got laryngitis on this trip, on this part of the trip. So a little irony there. But Ed said to them at one point, we were at the vendor's office and they just would not deal with me. And Ed finally looked at them and he said, do you realize she signs the purchase orders? If you want to get purchase orders, you have to deal with her. And they just sort of went, oh, all right, all right. And, and I really uh, think back on that. And this was probably 1993. 
94 maybe and Ed's the way he stood up for me and made it just very clear she's part of this and you have to work with her I I I look back on that and I have all kinds of crazy stories about traveling in India and things I learned and saw that uh, amazed me it's an amazing place uh talk about history talk about spirituality um I but I also saw some extremes of poverty that blew my mind right Wow. And I also saw the beginnings of the tech industry in Bangalore and what was happening there. And it's fascinating to me. And, and, I, and I also met a lot of women who were starting businesses in India who were going down the entrepreneurial path and creating kind of a middle class and an entrepreneurial class and a lot of women in the textile industry. And it was really exciting to see that. So I'm, I'm forever grateful for that early experience in my life. And... Um... It had to be just my understanding is you you're in that role for a few years right out of college, right? What an amazing experience, um, and you know, in a certain regard, almost hard to imagine that that didn't lead to some kind of global cross border trade, uh, you know, um, career path, right? I mean, just given how right. early you were, what was the catalyst to go and pursue? Uh, graduate school and sort of double down on the on the history and academic route. Well, I, 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 it's funny when you look back on how things happen. I just got really tired of living in Dallas, and I was spending every weekend in Austin with my friends. I loved Austin, and um, I had a boyfriend in Dallas, and we broke up. And I sort of was at a point where I just didn't want to live in Dallas anymore. And I couldn't work for Ed and Doris and not be in the Crows and be in Dallas. Mm -hmm. And I gave them notice and I said, I'm, I'm going to move. And I told my dad and he said, wait, you're quitting your good job and you're giving up your apartment and you're moving to Austin and you don't know what you're going to do. <laughs> That's what I did. Um, and I had saved money and I, I slept on a friend's couch in Austin to, as I was figuring out where was I going to live? What was I going to do next? And it's just ironic that, um, again, I fell back on, well, I know how to wait tables. I can work in a restaurant. I can you know, support myself while I go through a transition and figure out what I want to do. And that's how I met my husband. We've been together 25 years now. Wow. Isn't that funny? Uh, I, but we, we met literally within the first few months of uh, my moving to Austin. And so in many ways, I feel like in my personal life, it was sort of faded, but I knew I wanted to go to graduate school and I spent that time really thinking hard about what was it that I wanted to study. And it just was becoming more clear to me that law school was not my interest. And I, I can't even remember how I discovered the field of historic preservation, to be honest with you, but I looked at a number of programs um, in Chicago and Georgia and Texas and on the East Coast. And I, I think in my mind, Right. Well, so, so my thinking about preservation, historic preservation, was getting that master's degree would be a way to meld my interest in history and the built environment and also find a job <laughs> in the field. Um, so visiting Athens, Georgia, one of the programs I was looking at, I met with the professor who ran the program at the time, John Waters, who ended up being my thesis advisor. It was really good to me. And I really liked him and I loved Athens and I love REM. And I thought, well, this would be cool to live here for a couple of <laughs> years. So Rob went with me 
the first year and then he went back to Austin. If you see the drum set behind me, my husband is a drummer. And this I was going to ask his whole life. It's ask. not me. <laughs> we might hear him downstairs at some point. <laughs> yeah. So he had a great career in Austin and he did come to Athens and enjoyed it, but he, Austin was, you know, where he was doing his work. So, but it was fun because he was playing with Mary Cutrofello at the time and she opened for Greg Allman and did a whole Southeast tour my second year of grad school. So I, you know, I could see him in different parts of Georgia, South Carolina. So that was fun. But anyway, we, we went to Athens and it was a great experience. And I really, um, in my graduate program means a lot to me. And that experience meant a lot to me. And, but the fact that Rob went back to Austin meant that I had a real incentive to get my thesis defended and all my classwork done in two years and get back, which is what I did. And it was during that experience that you maybe got your first exposure to the world of philanthropy. I did. And yeah, was that something I, that yeah. had been on your radar as a possible path prior? Not at or? all. No, okay. not in the least bit. Nope. So tell me about that first exposure. What struck you and did, did kind of the light bulb go off right away or was it a, you know, more gradual kind of realization? I, it's a good question. I, I, applied for and received something called the Helena Rosenthal Fellowship in New York City with friends of the Upper East Side Historic District. So the summer between my first and second year of graduate school, I lived in New York on Crosby Street down in Soho. And I worked on 69th Street at Madison and for the friends in this fellowship role. And it was wonderful and I loved it. And I worked for Jane Cowan, who is the executive director of the nonprofit. I got to work with the board, had a really cool project I did creating um, this, this kind of tourist map of the historic districts of the Upper East Side. I got to go to landmark commission hearings with her. I got to do things around annual fund and membership and events. It was great. And by the way, I had like no money. I was a very broke graduate student, but it, it, it was actually, it worked. It's hard to believe, but it, it worked. I spent a lot of time walking in New York, which was great fun. And I think I just loved working for friends. And I also had taken a, a class where we'd done some grant writing. Um, it, it was taught by someone from the Georgia Trust. And then I did grant writing when I was at Friends as well. And I really liked that. And I remember the person who taught the class at UGA asking everybody, you know, what did you think would you consider the nonprofit sector? And I think I was the only person that raised my hand uh, or one of a few. Most people wanted to go to work for state, local government, um, which makes sense. And when I was, you know, looking to come back to Austin, it was the spring break of my second year of graduate school. I had some interviews lined up and some were with the Texas Historical Commission where I would have worked for the state of Texas. And then I interviewed to be the director of what's now called Preservation Austin, but then was called the Heritage Society of Austin. It's one of the oldest nonprofits in Austin. And I was offered two jobs. One was the executive director of Preservation Austin and the other was the Certified Local Government Coordinator Director Program uh, or Director Position for the THC. And it's just weird. I mean, they had the same salary offer, similar benefits package. And I thought, I wanna work for the nonprofit. 
And I think, again, my dad thought, yeah, but if you work for the state, that's so much more sure. It's just more of a sure thing. You'll be part of the state government, et cetera, et cetera. And this one seems riskier, but that's what I did. And we moved back. My dad and Rob came out. We were engaged at that point, Rob and I. And I just remember packing up the U-Haul and driving it back to Austin. And I literally started work as executive director of this nonprofit a couple of days later, believe it or not. And, and so, that's when I, you, oh, sorry, Brent. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and I immediately realized, oh, I'm going to need to do fundraising. This I was going to say part like, of the job. You went from <laughs> relatively narrow scope in, in yeah. the past work that you had done to exec director, which means now you're, you know, head of marketing, head of fundraising, head of everything. Um, yeah. Was that overwhelming? Did you feel, was it just kind of smooth sailing? I mean, what was the, um, I guess, uh, scale of the operation as well. Yeah. At that time we had three staff, so it was pretty small. We had a yeah, large board it. though. You know, the board okay. had about at that time, 40, 50 people. I mean, it was a big board wow. for a small nonprofit and, but it had been around since the fifties. I mean, really it had a real anchor in the Austin community and, uh, yes, it was overwhelming, definitely, because I, some things I understood from my experience working in private sector, because I had supervised people by the time I was leaving career resources, I had staff that reported to me. And so I had certain experience with, you know, financials and budgets and, you know, managing HR and personnel issues, Um but managing a board and working for a board as an executive director does was new for me and the fundraising part of it. So I immediately joined the Association of Fundraising Professionals, Greater Austin Chapter. And I just started talking to everybody I could in the development world in Austin. And being the state capital, there are a lot of nonprofits in Austin. There's a lot of fundraising happening, although it's, a, it's still a relatively young philanthropic community compared to Houston and Dallas. Uh, so and so if you could, if, yeah, yes. No, if you go could ahead. go back in time to the Julie who was desperately seeking counsel and mentorship and guidance from AFP <laughs> peers yeah. and just, you know, drop some knowledge on that person, what are kind of, when you think about what you didn't know at all then or appreciate then, what would you tell that person to have made you even more successful in that role? Oh, that's a great question. I think if I could go back, I would want that, that Julie then to think more about individual philanthropy and not be so focused on event generated proceeds, which are expensive to raise. Events take a lot of human power and overhead and have costs associated with them. Um, I would have, I would counsel that Julie that because you have such an established donor base and you've been around a long time, talking with individuals about opportunities to leave legacy gifts for such an organization would have been really natural. And it's not something we were actively doing. I think we were very, like many organizations at the, those types, we were very event focused on our gala, the awards gala and on our home store event. Later in my career, I got to do golf tournaments too. Um, so I've, I've, I've done all that kind of fundraising, but I think knowing what I know now, I would say, look at, look at who you're 
longtime supporters are. These are people you could be asking for much larger gifts than just their annual membership or their annual gift or their underwriting of a table at the gala, right? And so there's an element not, of like, yeah. if the gala sponsorship price points are roughly what they were last year, then you work towards achieving the gala sponsorship tables versus really maybe challenging those donors to think bigger or to think about, you know, what impact they could have that goes beyond the thousand dollar table at the gala or whatever it was. Right. That's yeah, right. Interesting. That's right. Interesting. Yeah. And, and so, I, yeah. and so I guess, you know, in those early, I mean, when you think about your early, you had to have some one-on-one -on -one donor interactions or, you know, mm -hmm. individual fundraising early in your career. Are there any moments that stand out where, you know, whether it went really poorly or really well, where you just got excited about the, the, the fundraising piece of, of this work? Well, I, one that comes to mind for me was later in my nonprofit career when I was at Safe Place, which is a, a family violence uh, shelter rape crisis center. Really amazing nonprofit in Austin. It was created from the merger of two other nonprofits into Safe Place. So it's both the, what used to be the Rape Crisis Center as well as the Center for Battered Women became Safe Place. And that was the nonprofit where we really started honing in on individual major gift philanthropy. And I can remember with the executive director, the first individual donor couple $100,000 gift just to support the, the, the nonprofit. It wasn't tied to an event, wasn't tied to a grant proposal, it was an ask. And they said, yes, and she started crying. She was so overwhelmed. And, um, and this is someone who's, who's someone I admire tremendously and has dedicated her life to this work. And I realized, and they, they, and the donors were so excited and they were overwhelmed and, you know, both parties in a way, um, had this sort of, you know, benefit and emotion. And I've, I've often heard fundraising leaders say, you know, when you do it well, the, the donors are more excited than the recipient, right? And it's, you give with your head and your heart. And, and so that moment was just, I just can see it like sitting there in one of the counseling rooms and, and talking with this donor couple. And they just said, yes, of course we'll do this. And it was amazing. So and going I, into that meeting, yeah. did, did you feel 50, 50? Did you feel 80, 20? I mean, how confident were you going into that meeting? Um, I think we probably felt, um, I think maybe we felt more 80-20, but 80 they would say no because we were sort of worried and apologetic and oh my gosh, is this too much? And should we ask them? And should we really be so specific with a dollar amount? You know, and this is a big amount of money for somebody to write a check for. And uh, I think we probably thought it was much more of a long shot. Wow. And, and even though they'd been through the shelter, they'd been through our assisted, assisted living centers and they, they'd visited and learned about the programs and we'd, you know, they'd gotten to know us uh, as an institution. I think this, you know, we just, we just didn't have the, the muscle development of asking for large six figure and later seven figure gifts from individuals in the same way. And um, now I will say, 
to the organization's credit, it had built a building, uh, more than a building, multiple buildings, a facility, and a lot of individual donors supported that bricks and mortar project. But this was not about bricks and mortar. This was just to support the programs. And I would imagine, you know, as you've advanced through your career and where you sit today, 80-20, you know, feeling 80-20 that the ask yeah. is not going to be accepted is not where you want to right you know right. be spending your time but you know are there i mean i don't know after maybe seeing that 80 20 break in your favor and maybe other 80 20s that have broken in your favor is there an element of, of just getting comfortable even making the solicitation from a perceived position of weakness like how do you think because you don't want to be yeah. surprising donors constantly with wild asks that are, you know, unlikely to, to connect or be fundable. But at the same time, if you don't, you know, take a big swing once in a while, you're not going to connect um, as you might have in that situation. So I don't know. Do, do you still what do you want the odds to be before you make that solicitation? Yeah, well, I will say now, and you know, this is many, many years later, um, one thing I would say that I have felt very strongly about is I would never surprise a donor with an ask, right? I, I like the concept of asking permission to ask, right? And that, that has actually worked very well for me, both at Texas and here at Berkeley, and, and not just gifts I've worked on, but gifts others have worked on, and especially in the principal gift arena. We would we would just never surprise somebody with an ask. So, yeah. uh, and, and, and I will say back to my safe place example, that wasn't a surprise at that meeting either. I mean, they knew we were asking them for support. So, um, but I, I feel, so sometimes people say funny things about fundraising to me. They say, oh, well, you know, you're picking pockets or something. And I say, never, I've never done that. I would never do that. Um, uh, I, so I, I am a big believer in the idea of, of asking permission to then ask. Um, yeah. and, and, and so I, now in terms of odds, I think um, you're right. I think part of it for our institution safe place at the time was we just weren't in the habit of asking individuals for large gifts to support the programs. We were really right. good at writing grants and fulfilling parameters of outputs and outcomes for foundation support and grant support. We were really good at putting on events. Um, you flip to the university world. Uh, we don't really do golf tournaments necessarily and galas and silent auctions and homes tours. You know, uh, we ask individuals to invest in our organizations in ways that are meaningful to them, right? And I think that in terms of the odds now in our work, you're absolutely right with the tools we have like Evertrue and other tools, we're much better prepared and have a better sense of who at least our major gift owners are and our principal gift owners and what they care about, what, they, what their passions are, how they're thinking about philanthropy, what's important to their family, et cetera, et cetera. So when we're asking, we, we are so much better prepared. And I think our odds are typically so much greater, right? Yeah. But we have more tools well, at our disposal. Well, tell me about the transition from Safe Place where it was local, very specific mission, yes. uh, you know, lo local nonprofit, that was trying to build a culture of philanthropy to then, you know, finally pivoting into the higher education um, realm where you spent over seven years now at one of the 
biggest brands in higher education, certainly one of the biggest brands in Texas um, with a very broad scope of work that goes beyond these, these very targeted nonprofits you've been working right. with. Um, obviously, it was a good experience. You spent over seven years there, which is a long time uh, in, in yep. development world and for any job. But it also had to just be a massive shift just in the scope of work and the breadth of philanthropic possibilities at a place like UT Austin relative to uh, some of those nonprofits. Yes, it was. It was. In fact, I was very hesitant to leave the nonprofit world. And um, I have friends uh, in the School of Architecture at UT Austin because of my time at Preservation Austin, people who served on board. There was a close connection to the School of Architecture and the Preservation Program. I also served on the Historic Landmark Commission in Austin, and I had friends who were on the faculty at the School of Architecture. And then I, I, the dean at the time, Fritz Steiner, who came from um, Arizona State, I'd actually met him when I was a graduate student and he came out to Georgia to do something with uh, one of the faculty members out there. And then, he, and then he came to Texas to be dean of the School of Architecture. And, you know, I, I just wasn't even interested. I had, you know, only been at Safe Place less than two years and I built out my team and I really, I loved the mission and I loved being challenged by working in a new sector in social services. And I just was not in any way looking to leave. But um, one of the faculty members who's a friend said, Julie Fritz needs an assistant dean for development and you do fundraising. You, this is your academic field for your master's program. You were on the Landmark Commission. You ran the preservation nonprofit. You know this world, they need you. You need to do this. <laughs> And it was really funny to go through that interview process because I think, you know, and I give so much credit to Fritz for my career. He's a pin now, my career, which is his graduate school alma mater. He's dean there at the Weizmann School. But he really is the one who convinced me to come to higher ed. And I don't think if it hadn't been Fritz, I'm not sure I would have done it, to be honest with you. But yeah, I got there. I got to Texas and I... You know, we had I had heard in the nonprofit stories just some real horror stories about working at Texas and the competitiveness and the territory territoriality and wow. and and some of those things certainly are true. They're true at any large institution. But I I actually I loved being in the School of Architecture. It's a very small, prestigious part of the university, very highly ranked in design intelligence rankings love the faculty, love the grads, love the donors. It was so interesting. Um, I think Fritz and I worked really well together. I had a lot of fun. It was a lot of work, but, but it was a huge change because first of all, I was used to working for governing boards directly, right? Who run the organization and make the key decisions and have the oversight. And that's not the case with the university advisory boards, right? A place like Texas, a place like Berkeley, were actually governed by a board of regents who are very far removed from the day-to-day -day operations, typically of the institution. So I just kept saying, well, we have all these volunteers, but what do they actually get to do and decide on? It's so different from the nonprofit sector. Um, and then I would say also the focus on endowment fundraising was really new for me, right? Because I came from the sector where you're you know, either as an executive director or director of development, you're having to make sure you can make payroll, pay your bills, keep the doors open, fulfill your programs. 
and it's very hands-on and you're, you're, yeah. you're, you said you're, you're many things, you wear many hats. I used to joke, you know, you're in charge of the budget, you're in charge of the fundraising, you're in charge of the dishwashing, you know, you have it all. <laughs> and that was really different to come to a university. And it's not like you're trying to raise the money to keep the, the school open per se, in the same right. way you are in the nonprofit sector. It's a different, the focus is different. So the endowment fundraising, and then the focus on gift planning. And I've learned so much and had so much experience in both my higher ed jobs working in gift planning. And I, I'm not sure I would have had that the same way in the nonprofit sector, although I, you know, depends on the nonprofit. And, uh, but that has been something I have enjoyed tremendously. I want to come back to gift planning in a second, but my guess would be after your, your dad being skeptical but supportive on many of these decisions he was probably pretty excited about the ut austin move or no he was he yeah. was yeah. yeah 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 he was happy uh, very cool and and so let's just talk about gift planning for a second because uh, i actually just recently hosted a gentleman who runs gift planning at the yukon foundation greg not uh and greg had sent me an email and said hey you never talk about gift planning on the show um, I, you should. And I said, well, you come onto the show and tell me about mm -hmm. it. And I realized mm -hmm. I don't talk about it because I don't know very much about it. So what else should we know? Like you already hinted at it as if you could go back in time and talk to, you know, younger you earlier in the in your career, you'd have a focus on individual fundraising and legacy and gift planning. So right. um, when along your journey did that start to click? Because I think it can just be one of those areas, silos, you hear about it, but you don't really focus on it or learn about it until you experience it. And so when did you start to really appreciate it and why? I definitely think I started to appreciate it at the School of Architecture. And we also, while I was there as assistant dean, we turned 100. And something cool about the School of Architecture at UT in the first class, uh, I think it was, if I'm remembering this correctly, 50-50 women and men. Mm. Um, so I, for me, that really clicked in the School of Architecture. And, and, and you, it's a beautiful part of the Texas campus. The buildings are phenomenal. Cass Gilbert and, um, you know, Goldsmith designed some of them. And Goldsmith Hall is amazing. It's one of the best architecture school physical locations in, in anywhere. And I think that we really had a lot of engagement with people around legacy giving, because you think about it, if you're in a five-year BARC program, Bachelor of Architecture program, you're in studio and you're in Goldsmith Hall like 24 seven and you're in a graduate career, you feel a lot of connection to the place and to the faculty and, and to the school. And we had really good, I will say that we had excellent participation rates among our BARC alumni in terms of just giving annually. And I think we also had really strong legacy giving. And those things to me go hand in hand a little bit, Brent, because I think what I've learned from the people who are expert at this is those, the strong indicator of, of making a legacy gift to an institution is consistent annual giving, right? And especially somebody who's been giving consistently for a long period of time and then incrementally stepping up the giving, that's a very good sign of somebody who will want to, or maybe already has included you, included you in their legacy plans. Yeah. I'd love to know a bit about your transition to UC Berkeley. You know, when I think about your move from 
uh, Dallas to Boston and, and the, you know, change culture shock, different contexts, but also, you know, exciting, amazing experiences. I'm sure there was a, a version of that, um, making your way to Northern California after a seven year, uh, run at, at UT Austin. Um, and what I want to know in maybe in about that transition, but also as you sit where you sit now, you're just operating at a scale that few do. And so when you say things like it is important to have that strong base of consistent, loyal annual support, because that leads to plan gift and principal giving. And that's what all Mm -hmm. the data suggests. But at the same time, you're dealing with hundreds of thousands of constituents. And if you're talking Mm -hmm. about truly moving the needle from a philanthropic perspective, I have no doubt that that is largely going to be governed by a handful of people or a couple hundred people at the very, very top of the giving pyramid. And so, and, and you know, even in collaboration with your team, we, we realize with your team, I'm sure it's no different at UT Austin, that the amount of wealth, the amount of uh, high capacity unmanaged prospects who are annual supporters, it's an enormous figure. And if you could snap your figures and hire hundreds of gift officers, you still might not be able to cover every relationship that you'd like to cover. And so how do you think about balancing resource allocation, either at UT Austin or at UC Berkeley, recognizing that no matter how well resourced you are, there's going to be a limit in, in, in how many relationships you can really build. That's like right. it's almost the opposite of probably how you felt at Safe Place, where it wasn't like we have so many incredible existing supporters who we could potentially migrate up the giving pyramid. Um, but that is something that I think is somewhat unique to institutions like UT Austin and UC Berkeley. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you completely. And I think this is where a good understanding of the analytics work and the data, the kinds of things you guys do, it's, it's institutions like Berkeley and Texas have to have that as a overlay on making decisions about where to resource. And I'll, I'll give you a good example from our regional major gifts team. We are focused in this campaign, which is a $6 billion campaign. And these are huge numbers the universities put out, right? Um, and uh, sometimes overwhelmingly large, but we're 4.3 billion of the way there, which is fantastic. But I get asked all the time, well, what's the strategy on the regional team? And, and based on the data analysis we did with Martz and Lundy, we could see that we could do a $6 billion campaign based on our support on the East Coast, primarily New York, Connecticut, Boston, uh, Northern California, Southern California, and Asia. And that is where we have put resources. And I get asked all the time, Brent, well, Julie, you're from Texas. Why aren't you building out teams in Texas or going to Florida or Chicago or Seattle? Well, we can't go everywhere. And and I'm not a big fan myself of kind of the one and done where you show up in a region with your chancellor and deans and faculty and you come in once and you have a big event and you don't have anyone consistently there. You don't have a consistent alumni presence there. You don't have a consistent engagement. I've seen mm-hmm. that done and I just don't think that works very well. So I, I have been real focused that we are, these are the four areas for the regional major gifts team in this campaign where we're focused because we have uh, built out staff there. We've built out alumni engagement work there. We are, you know, some of some areas are better cultivated than others, but and and the data shows us 
this is where we can have mm -hmm. a good return on investment. And you yeah. do have to make some choices, right? Because you're right. Yeah. You It doesn't matter how much budget you have. You would never be able at these large institutions to cover everything and right. get to everyone. Can I just ask how your, your perspective might have changed over the last year and going through this idea mm -hmm. that, you know, there's this once in a lifetime technology adoption. I'm sure you've had donor conversations via Zoom that you never would have imagined you would do via Zoom. I bet you've been able to involve faculty or deans or other um, stakeholders in ways that wouldn't have lined up for traditional field travel. Yet here we sit on the cusp of being able to travel again. Um, mm -hmm. But it does make me wonder that if we're not as rooted, uh, you know, if we're all a Zoom link, if we're a Zoom link away from Southern India, you know, yeah. if we're a Zoom link away from London, if we're a Zoom link away from, um, you know, every constituent, does the campaign of the future need to be as geographically oriented as you are right now? And there's a balance because you need to be focused. You're 4.3 out of six there. But I am just curious as you think about how much more reachable donors are, everybody being a Zoom link away, have you had experiences in the last year that maybe make you believe there could be more of a hybrid future? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, I have to say, um, I'm thinking about some of the new donors we've engaged during this COVID period. And it's interesting. There's a couple in Asia. Um, there are trying to think if there's anybody at the major gift or principal gift level who's sort of outside of our, you know, California, West Coast, New York, Asia region, there isn't anyone coming to mind, but we have, we are having these conversations about what's the technology going to mean, because we actually have a new director of the regional teams who was the director of Southern California, and she's giving a lot of thought to, might we reallocate some of our resources but I will say this, I think that it's one thing to, you know, okay, have a gift officer who could maybe cover some additional regions as a fundraiser, but what are you doing around continued strategies around engagement yep. activities and, and outreach and building community? Are you going to do all that on Zoom? I mean, at some point, I'm not entirely sure that people aren't going to be um, wanting something that isn't on Zoom. But, I, yeah. but to your point, I will say we have uh, chancellor's councils in New York, Southern California, and Asia. And the attendance at those meetings with the chancellor, especially in Asia, because they come from many different countries, has been phenomenal because we can do yes. it on Zoom. And we can, it's much easier for, for the constituents. But whether or not that means that you could have success in raising major gifts and principal gifts and new regions long-term, doing it all using technology as, versus having to be there in person and building out a, a, a larger program, I don't know. That to me is yeah. a TBD, maybe. I mean, I, yeah. think, I do not think when we come back after COVID, things will go back to exactly the way they were. Yeah. I, I completely agree with that. And yeah, we're not going to unlearn these skills and these technologies uh, next year, right? I mean, we may not want to use them as much as we had right. last year, right. but we're not yeah. going to unlearn it. And so I think that it's, it is, what is, a, what is a more efficient hybrid approach where you know, maybe every fourth advisory board meeting is now in person instead of right. Zoom. And so that it's more cost effective. There's still a balance of, you know, in-person personalization and experiences for sure. Um, and yeah, it will be a little bit 
um, a little bit, you know, TBD, but I think that um, we're very optimistic. I'm actually now just thinking, I, I just had a conversation with a, with a friend who actually a coworker's fiance who works as a buyer for Carter's. Uh, okay. uh, and, and so she's, you know, probably a 2021 version of what you were doing in India in 1993. And, and, you know, what have they had to do? It used to be that if you wanted to, um, you know, select merchandise to purchase, well, you had to go and touch and feel it. And now mm-hmm. they've had to do all of those things over Zoom. And I think about, you know, what that equivalent role that you did in 1993 and all those trips to India, you know, well, maybe there's um, a tenth of the trips required or a fourth of the trips required. And applying that to this world, you know, how many constituents are in India that now are Zoom link away? And, and maybe there are ways that we can uh, go deeper in the giving pyramid with our constrained resources um, in more of a hybrid approach. And so, you know, something we're yep. excited to continue to explore. Yeah, I, I can see that point, uh, definitely. And I particularly think it'll be somewhat, it'll be interesting to see, I don't know the answer to this, but how generationally different that will be. I know on some of your podcasts, you've talked about the millennials and Gen Z and how they think about this versus say Gen X or the boomers. And although we've had all generations show right. up for our Zoom homecoming. We did a homecoming and parents weekend completely remote. I think we had 46 countries represented, right? We would never get that in person, never. right? Never. Yeah. And so it doesn't no. mean we don't want real homecoming because we do. It's going to be amazing next year. Think yeah. about how great that is going to be. But yeah. we also want 46 countries to feel included and a part of the community. And, and so, um, yeah, that's where I think there's going to be this whole new category of of, of, of digital event experiences that, that can allow us grade scale, hopefully going beyond all the Zoom boxes in exactly the same way at every single event, um, but you know that we can balance real homecoming with something more um, scalable. I, I have to ask, just as you think about the last year, what are, you, what are you excited about that you've worked on? I mean, are there specific gifts you've been a part of or just highlights that you would want to cite uh, or share for our community? I know you just had a great big give uh, as part of your uh, community. I caught up with your colleague Howard and, and, and others yeah. about that recently, but what are some of the things that really make you proud over the last year? Well, one thing that I'm incredibly proud of and, and Howard is a part of this as well as um, our external relations and marketing communications team. And frankly, you know, the whole community was, we piv- you know, we launched the campaign February 29th of 2020. We were basically the last big in-person event on the campus. Wow. And, and then, you know, two weeks later, we were moving into shelter in place. And starting in about April, we heavily pivoted to fundraising for COVID-19 related needs, immediate needs. Uh, Student emergency funding was a big one, as it was for most universities, and COVID-19 related research that was taking place on the campus and and, um, the need to be able to stand up some things like, you know, face masks for everybody who's an essential employee and more hand sanitizing stations and things like that. And we, we very quickly pivoted as an advancement community on this particular need and raised about 36 million so far, all in outright support. It's none of it's endowed. It's mainly maybe a couple of pledges, but it's mainly, it's all outright. 
And about two thirds of it is, is geared around the research needs and, you know, kind of helping the campus get through this and all the things we needed to get through it. And then about a third has been on the student emergency fund side for graduate students and undergraduates. But what was, what's been exciting is to see the number of first time donors and lapsed donors who have given, I, I think, I hope I quote this correctly or that I remember this correctly. I think it's been about 6,000 unique donors that have stepped up. And I'm really excited to see and, and think about how do we convert those lapsed donors and first-time donors into becoming lifelong donors to Berkeley? Absolutely. And will we see that this COVID-19 channel for either starting back up your giving or making your first gift is, is a channel that makes you more likely to continue with your giving to the campus, right? That's what I don't, we don't know yet, but I'm excited to see because one thing we've learned with Big Give and we just had the seventh Big Give, as you said, and uh, Howard really wanted to hit 16,000 gifts. And I heard yesterday, we, we looks like we just went over 16,000, which is a record. And congratulations to him and all the people who work on Big Give, because as you know, it takes a village to do these things. But we, you know, now that we're in seven years in, we can see that Big Give as a channel for a first gift increases your likelihood of making your second gift and more so than traditional channels, other channels. And so I'm, I'm very intrigued and interested to see what we find with people who've come in through the COVID-19 portal. Yeah. Yeah, and I think also, you know, this is an area where we're spending a lot of time, it, you know, what can we do to shorten the cycle between either that first time gift or the reactivation gift? And, you know, for the segment of the population that maybe is very, you know, let's call it high net worth, but giving at a pretty modest level, how can we use data and analytics to surface those prospects in a more automated way to create elevated stewardship experiences so that it doesn't mean that, you know, it has to be 25 years from now when that major gift occurs, or it has to be, you know, decades before the planned gift comes in. And I think that that's an area where there's going to be a lot of innovation um, in the coming years, for sure. Um, one other topic I wanted to um, get your perspective on, and I know we need to wrap up soon, but we did ask you in a pre-podcast questionnaire where you thought the sector uh, was over and in over in, uh, investing and underinvesting. And you didn't comment on the overinvesting, but on the underinvesting, you did say uh, uh, underinvesting in diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and justice work, and that you see that rapidly, and you just hope it sticks. Tell me more about why you answered that way, why you see that changing rapidly, and why you're maybe somewhat concerned that it might not stick. Wow. Yeah, those are really good questions. Um, I think uh, why is it's more than just the history of advancement, right? It's the history of our country and all that goes into that and, and the history of higher education and our institutions and the complex history that we have. So it's, you know, I think that advancement traditionally, and in fact, this just happened to me not too long ago um, with an institution has thought of the philanthropist as um, the men and specifically white men. And that's been sort of how advancement and fundraising has focused in, in the past, its efforts thinking these were the decision makers. These, this is what a philanthropist looks like. And we know darn well that that's not the case. 
And it's uh, a very diverse landscape of people who are philanthropic. But I think there's been a history in our field of, of looking at the philanthropist looks like this. And what I was saying in my little side comment was we just got a thank you letter. I won't name the institution that was written only to my husband. And I just nearly fell out of my chair because one thing I certainly learned working at Safe Place was do not make the assumption that the husband or the, the male part of the donor party is the one making the decisions, right? And in our case, definitely our family philanthropy is driven by me. And so I actually sent a nice note to the institution just to say, I, I wanna just as colleagues and as supporter, I just wanna point this out because uh, it is what I do for a living too. And I do care about your institution. Um, so I, you know, that why is so, it's as complicated as the landscape of American history, right? And the history of the, you know, our nation. And um, I think we, I, I, the last case conference I attended, which was the all districts conference, I had a chance to hear um, a keynote speaker from BU actually talk about how admissions offices are so much further ahead that it, than advancement offices on this DEIB work, right? And, and looking you at- mean, uh, You mean in the uh, engagement of the constituency they're serving or within the office itself? Uh, I, I think this was about the both, to be honest with you, yeah. um, because it, it's, it takes one to support the other at some level. And that we, in advancement, that we could learn a lot from the admissions offices and our institutions. And I thought about our Berkeley admissions office, and I think that's very true. Um, and I, I took that point, and, and that we could move more quickly, Brent. Too. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, yep. So, uh, I, so I, I think that there are institutions though that I think have been focused on this and have been investing in this. And I, you know, I'm gonna put on a little plug here for CASE and I am on the board of CASE. And so just wanna disclose that, but I, I feel like CASE has been focused on this for a number of years and certainly under you know, the work that Rob Henry's done at CASE, um, Sue Cunningham's leadership as CEO. I think this is a place where CASE is bringing a lot of good work to the table. I've had conversations with colleagues at some of the big consulting firms. They acknowledge the advancement consulting firms. They acknowledge yep. that they've got catching up to do for certain. Mm -hmm. And this hasn't been an area of strength for them. So yeah. I, I, I will say, well, ahead. it hasn't yeah. been an area of strength. I just believe it's a little bit. Look, let's take your personal example. Why did you end up at BU? Well, it sounds like in part, somebody at BU admissions developed a strategy to more aggressively recruit students from Texas. And that is one factor that led you there. And, and mm -hmm. I'm sure we've all been a part of different, um, you know, different priorities and goal setting. And I think the, you know, as a company right now, we're having the same conversations. What can we do? Uh, not just um, resting on the fact that we feel like if we do a good job in our work, that can help create relationship building and that can lead to philanthropy, which can lead to access and opportunity and justice and belonging. That's good, but how can we make it more direct? And I do believe mm -hmm. that one of the huge opportunities in the advancement world is you are on a campus of talented young people that are much more reflective of the composition of your state or our country than most advancement shops or most tech right. companies like Evertrue. And so we're just sitting here saying, what can we do to be as focused and committed and aggressive 
as the BU admissions team was about their Texas strategy in the late 80s, right? And so I think that that's where we are uniquely positioned in the sector mm-hmm. to activate these latent talent pools that just aren't reflected in our org charts um, as well as uh, I think they need to be. And I think the data we have about the grow your own model from places that have had internship programs like Michigan and Penn State is that it is a way to you know, address this. Uh, although I will say there are some people who say um, this notion that we don't have enough of a diverse pipeline to recruit from is false. You have to think differently about how you recruit and what you look for. And I, I think mm. there's some truth to that. But I am, I agree with you about a grow your own model. It's something I really wanted to do at Texas and we just didn't have the resources at the time to do it. And it's something I'd very much like to do here at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that is um, a place where we could have tremendous impact. And I think it ties back to this point about looking at our admissions offices and what they've done and how they've been able to accomplish this and taking a, a cue from their playbook. But we do have to resource it and you have to stick with it, Brent. I mean, I can't be a sort of one and done thing. This has to be a, tr- a true commitment that's longstanding and invested in and resourced by the institution. And that's what I'm really committed to doing, yeah. at least with the part of advancement that I have some, some you know, control over, I guess you could say. And we, we've brought in yeah. a really excellent DEIB consultant, Monroe France from NYU, who's working with the UDAR team at Berkeley. And uh, you know, it's not easy work. He, he's told us that from the get-go and we've just done a whole round of listening sessions with our staff that he facilitated. And then we just did a survey with Talmetrics. And as a leader, it's sometimes it's kind of hard to, to hear what people have to say, but that's what we're here to do. And I'm, I'm feeling really optimistic though about this moment, I have to say. And, uh, but it still doesn't mean it's easy and, 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 and doesn't mean we have all the answers either. Um, but I, I, as I think about the end of the campaign that we're in at Berkeley, it'll end at the end of 2023. And I think about the work we did at the beginning around our kind of one Berkeley culture and developing more of a hybrid model for the advancement work at Berkeley. We'd been very, very decentralized before. I think about this sort of end of the campaign coming in to do some significant work in DEIBJ that will be lasting, that will change things and not just sort of um, check a box, right? Because that's that's yeah. not going to be effective. Well, it's a little bit like the, uh, you know, the impact of having consistent loyal donors today will really be felt 10 or 20 or 30 years from now. That's so right. There's an element of like, how do we make sure that big change leadership level that we can make today we do but also at the same time make sure we're planting seeds that uh you know that that will um uh continue to grow over the coming decades uh final kind of question i mean you've already referenced i mean you've referenced so many like mentors and people who've (laughs) shaped you and that is a recurring theme among many of the leaders that we've hosted on this on this podcast and I love hearing about it because it's played a huge mentorship has played a huge role in my life but who are some of those um, those mentors um, that if you haven't already mentioned who are they and how they helped you and what advice would you have to others who are maybe seeking mentors 
Well, you know, specific to advancement leaders, I, I certainly have to point to uh, my colleague at UCLA and the UC system, uh, Rhea Turtletop. She's uh, mentored many people I know, and I got to know her through the Big Ten Fundraising Institute. I was able to attend Bitfry when I was at Texas, and that's an amazing, an amazing opportunity for people. And Rod Kirsch also was there and was a part of that. I was there the year that so many things had happened at Penn State that were just so hard. And to hear from him about what they were going through and how they were addressing it was really inspirational. Um, but yeah, Rhea is somebody I have looked to for a long time and still do. And I think she, you know, you think about the size and complexity of UCLA and everything Rhea's got to do. Uh, she makes herself available to people and it's, it's really, uh, you know, you appreciate that because in these jobs, there aren't a lot of people you can call <laughs> for advice who've been there. Uh, you know, for me, I'd say another person who I think of as a mentor is, is John Ford, who was at Stanford, Martin Lundy. Then he was my counterpart at UCSF when I moved into the vice chancellor role and you know, I appreciate John so much because he had the kind of Stanford vice president experience and then he had the UCSF vice chancellor experience. I've only been at two large public institutions, so I can't say that I know the private university world quite as well. And he's seen both. So he, he was really, he has been, continued to be even in his retirement, somebody whose counsel and advice I really appreciate. And frankly, I think I, I you know, there's the three Johns because there's John Ford and then there's John Cash at Martz and Lundy who is our campaign counsel and has been wonderful and is a Berkeley grad and worked at Berkeley in advancement a long time ago. But uh, he knows the place so well, and he's been such a good partner to me in all that we've been trying to do these last seven years. And then the other John is John Glear, of course, at GGNA. And uh, Berkeley is part of the Advancement Leadership Forum public group. And I've gotten to know John over the years. And so I, I just joke about the three Johns in Advancement Consulting that we all, all rely on and have done so much in this world. Um, and the last person I'd mention is Connie Kravis, who was the vice president at University of Washington. I think she's retired now and she, she really did an amazing job up there. And I, I sometimes wonder if, you know, Washington is, University of Washington is where it is geographically, you know, people don't always remember what a well, just outstanding advancement shop they have there. And they've done a lot of big things like really bringing together uh, the alumni relations portfolio, the communications portfolio, the development portfolio in a very cohesive and integrated fashion while working in a really decentralized environment with strong deans and strong independents. And they have just, they had an amazing campaign and they do such a good job, I think. Yeah. And Connie also has always been so willing to share her time and her expertise and her advice. And I think the other thing is she's just, she's such a nice and kind person with so low ego and yet she's accomplished so much in this field. I, I just think the world of her. I love it. It's great hearing those examples. And I think it does highlight, you know, again, just how collaborative this sector can be. Um, you know, the fact that we're not 
competitors is cited quite frequently, but it, it just does allow for a level of sharing that you rarely uh, find in other, in other sectors. And I think on that note, Julie, thank you so much for sharing your journey um, uh, across the country, across the world. It's just amazing to learn more about you. And again, just the scale that you're operating at is, is so rare. I guess my final last question would be when you think about the best advancement professionals you've worked with, and you can define best however you want, but are there common characteristics or traits that come to mind when you're uh, either interviewing people or, or when you just reflect on some of even those people you just named as mentors? Yes, certainly. Um, you know, I, I think first and foremost, you really have to care deeply about mission and the mission of the institution and, and being part of a mission driven cause. And you, you can tell that with somebody pretty darn quickly. And so the people I think of who do so well in this work, they so genuinely are motivated by helping others and in helping others both fulfill their philanthropic dreams with what they want to accomplish and using the philanthropy to help others do important and great work in our world. So I, I think that is, is definitely something that is true of all the people I know who've been so successful in advancement. Um, I would also say just sort of uh, the advancement leaders that I think have so highly, they are very, um, humble and they really want to see others succeed and really recognize that you can't, um, you can't do this work at a high level without a lot of people at the table. And it takes the back office functions and it takes the fundraisers and everything else. And you, you, you have to recognize that and support that and want to see others succeed, right? And, and I think the leaders that I, I really um, admire, you can, when they talk about some of their staff and things that they've done, you can just see the pride and, and the support and the, the, the way that they, they elevate others, right? I, I, I admire that a lot. Um, and I, I also think to be in higher ed, you just have to truly be jazzed about working with the faculty and, and the students. And I know I, when I'm having kind of a challenging day, if I go to an event with the students and, or I you know, have a meeting with an inspiring faculty member, it really just picks me up and lifts me up yeah. like nothing else. And obviously I, I have a thing for living in college towns, Berkeley, Austin, Boston, Athens. <laughs> so I, I, I like them clearly. Um, but I, I like the people and I like getting to see big things happen, important things happen, you know, the challenges of the world addressed by faculty and students alike. I, I find that exciting. So the people who I think do this work really well, clearly they also care deeply about what higher education has done for them and can do for others. And that comes through very clearly. I love it. Well said. And your passion and affinity for both the separate and college towns. And we uh, tried to make the most of Zoom over the last year. I'm excited myself to hit the road again. together. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Julie. Uh, be well and best wishes as you continue to accelerate through the end of the campaign. Thank you, Brent. It's good to visit with you. I really appreciate being invited. Take care. Right, take care. Bye. Bye bye.